Hey, thanks everyone for listening to our podcast. And before we get started this week, uh, we want to announce that we're having a little t-shirt giveaway. We're getting our first history, politics, and beer swag uh, coming in, and we would like to give out a few t-shirts. And if you want to win yourself a t-shirt, all you got to do is email us at historypoliticsandbeer.com at gmail.com and tell us why you like listening to our podcast. Uh, From that, we will choose if you read those on the air and we will ship you out the first edition History, Politics, and Beer t-shirt. So thanks for listening and look forward to hearing from you. Welcome to Season 2 of History, Politics, and Beer. The podcast that examines contemporary issues through the lens of history. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with an ice-cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. All right, we're chugging right along here, boys and girls. We are back with another edition of History, Politics, and Beer. Um, and as the cold weather approaches, we're kind of getting away from the beer a little bit there, Jeff Hudson. Uh, this week, um, you brought something. It looks like we have wax melted around the cap or latex or something. It's um, wax. <laughs> it looks like latex. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but I guess it's, I guess it's, it's wax. So what are we uh, partaking in today on these cold days of November getting into December? Well, uh, the wax you mentioned is the signature of Maker's Mark whiskey, and that's the Maker's Mark. They dip it in in, in wax, uh, and Maker's Mark is a bourbon, and uh, it's a little bit unusual bourbon. You know, uh, uh, whiskeys, uh, there are various types of whiskey, including bourbon whiskey, and the composition of what they call the mash determines what kind of whiskey it is. All right. And uh, bourbons have more corn in the mash. I think it has to be at least 51% corn. Yeah, and I I think Maker's Mark might be 70% or something like that. And then uh, sometimes they call it a wheater because Maker's Mark's a little unusual with bourbons because it doesn't have any rye in it. It doesn't have any rye in it. So you want to take a sip of that? I'm going to take a sip of it. Here we got going. That's good. That's yeah. really good. Is it? And, you yeah. Know, I, I like the bourbons. Uh, you know, some people prefer scotch or they have right. Irish whiskey and stuff. But because of the, the corn and the right. mash, a little sweeter. It is a little sweeter. And I like the little sweeter. I have right. to admit, I, I, I like the bourbons of all the whiskeys. I think bourbons are my favorite. Well, I'm, look to, I'm looking forward to these winter months with the podcast and getting into a little bit more of uh, this side of the spirits. Um, you've taught me a lot about beers that I did not know, and I'm hopefully I will enjoy being educated as the winter rolls along on different sort of spirits. And this is really kind of my, not my first bourbon, but I even did research before you came over, uh, to do this on whiskeys. I, I didn't even realize bourbon was a whiskey. Like I didn't realize like everything is whiskey, like bourbon's a whiskey, whiskey's whiskey, a scotch is a whiskey. Right. It's just about how it's produced that makes it what kind of whiskey it is. Right. The percentages of the grains right. and, and, and where it's made, I guess. Bourbon's got to be made in the U.S. to call right. itself uh, bourbon, uh, but it's pretty good. I'm getting that nice warm feeling now in my little zip. I, I'm good with the bourbon today. Look at you. And though people can't see, you got your flannel on, you got your vest on. Yeah, I put, gave you an axe, man. You could be in a beanie. You could be out in the woods. Maybe like a duck a, call. A lumberjack. 
right. Hey, last, I want, I, we ended last week's podcast about the 43-minute mark, and I wasn't quite done with you asking you questions, but we were running out of time. So I, I want to backtrack a little bit. Last week, we were talking about um, Donald Trump, and we were talking about the midterm elections. And I wanted to ask you about the Hillary Clinton effect from 2016. Trump won the election, uh, won the Electoral College. He lost a popular vote by 3%, 2.8%. Or was that 3 million? I three, thought it was 3 million. You're right. Yeah, I thought it was like, yes. by around 3 million votes. Right. Thank you. 3 million votes. Um, and the question I've always asked is how many people in, in those, those swing votes were voting for Donald Trump or voting against Hillary Clinton. And I, I've always thought that there was a sizable part of the population that couldn't stomach Clinton and simply voted against her. And it's kind of your take on this Hillary Clinton effect uh, in the 2016 elections. Okay. Well, if, if you go back to 1982 when, when Bill Clinton was, right. was elected – and, and 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 you look at that, and you kind of uh, chart the course of American presidential politics to 2016. You'll see that um, the Republicans ha- since 1982 have won the popular vote one time, uh, and that was in 2004 when George Bush ran for re-election. So I. Th- And if if you think about who opposed him, it was John Kerry. Right. John Kerry is an honorable man, very wooden, not a great candidate. And and Bush was a war president. Right. And, uh, you know, at at that time, uh, people, the economy was, hadn't collapsed yet and all the things that became a problem his his, uh, second term. But, you know, Clinton was a good candidate. Bill Clinton was a good candidate. He He's was, one of the best candidates. Now, not, uh, he of, could my, talk to, of my lifetime. Yeah, he, he could talk to everybody. Right. He talked. You know, he talked in the language that the average person understood, and he won twice. Uh, Barack Obama was a little different. He talked in more aspirational terms. Uh, I did have the, uh, you know, the experience of watched him uh, speak at the train station here in Lancaster. Oh, he got you? off when he was. Okay. When he was uh, running in the primary, uh, and in two thousand and and uh, eight, and he was uh, you know he was just a tremendous speaker. I I think you have to say he was a very good candidate. You know, one of the best. Like I said, in my lifetime, him, Obama, Clinton, and Reagan were were the three best candidates. Yeah. That I remember. But since 1992, I would say that anytime the Democrats have a good candidate, they win. And it's not close. You know, Clinton won pretty easily. Right. Uh, Obama won the popular vote twice in a row. I mean, it wasn't, you know, people were expecting that it might be close between Romney and Obama, but it wasn't really. Uh, so I think just in general, the way the, the, polit- the, the you know, uh, contemporary politics works out. The, the Democrats will win if they have – and they might even win the popular vote even with a bad candidate. Uh, but and you know, Which they I, did last time. I, I would argue that Hillary Clinton was a bad candidate uh, and they won the popular vote. Right. And, and you know what? Al Gore was 
you know, certainly a knowledgeable guy, but not a good candidate. Not a good candidate. Yeah, you know, not much. And, and and so, rather than just single Hillary out as a particularly bad candidate, I would say she's in that line of of candidates who aren't very good, didn't have a lot of charisma, didn't have a lot of connection to the average person, and even though she won the uh, the popular vote, she lost the electoral college, and. And I remember when we were talking to, uh, you know, Professor Madonna over at FNM, and he pointed out that this was the first election he he could remember uh, that he mm-hmm. knew about, where both candidates were had uh, most people didn't like him. Right. Most people felt negatively about Hillary, and most people felt negatively about Donald Trump. So I think that's the kind of election that Donald Trump's wins. He he can he can sort of drive other people's. Negatives. He can he can drive those up. Had he ran against a Bill Clinton, a Barack Obama, guys that were positive and could articulate a positive right. vision, and could make a connection to average people, I don't think there's any way in the world he would have beaten it. Remember, we were talking eighty thousand votes in three states: Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Distributed in those three right. states, if they switch, so. Can't would Obama have won? Would a, a candidate like they have uh, a hard time thinking that Bill Clinton they wouldn't have won? Yeah, no, they they would have picked up those eighty thousand right. votes. So I I agree with you. I don't want to just let people pick on Hillary, but I would say she's in that line of non charismatic uh, Democrats who have lost, even though they win the popular vote. You get a good candidate. You get somebody who can connect to the right. And that's a whole nother podcast about how Democrats generally, especially economically, most people favor what they're in favor of. If you look at this last election. And nationally, there's more registered Democrats than there are Republicans. This last election, the number one issue was health care. And the number one thing about health care was protecting pre-existing conditions. I mean, that's that's a Democratic issue. And so – if you run a a person that can make a connection with the American people, they're going to win, I think. And I think history shows that from, from the past 26 years. If you run somebody who doesn't and whose negatives are pretty high, then you have what happened. Well, then this leads me into my next question. Um, and this is the state of the current Republican Party. Uh, the Republican Party has seems to be the party of – um, rich white guys, and it seems to be even becoming more of that. It seems their umbrella is getting smaller and not larger. And what I mean by umbrella is they're not pulling more people into the party, different demographics. We're not seeing uh, the the browning of America, so to speak. Our dem- we're not seeing that group uh, embrace the Republican Party. And my question to you is, what do you think the state of the Republican Party is, and what does that mean not only for the nation, the Republicans, but also what does it mean for Democrats long term? That's a, a really good question. I think it's a very complicated one. And I, I would say that President Trump did pull in some more blue-collar workers. Yes, some, absolutely. Some union workers. West Virginia who, and states like that. Rural, Ohio. Rural blue-collar, Absolutely. So he pulled in uh, a, a slightly different demographic. The problem with President Trump 
is, and you saw it in the last, uh, in this last midterm, is that because of his language and because of his stance on certain issues, he's really alienated what, for most of my lifetime and your lifetime, probably has been an absolute core constituency of the Republican Party, and that is your well-educated wealthier suburbanite. Right. And he's alienated those people. If you look at where the Democrats picked up house seats, it was in the suburbs right here. And I mean, he picked up, uh, the Democrats picked him up in the Philly suburbs, places where uh, the uh, Americans are, tend to be a little more liberal socially, but maybe conservative economically. I mean, they, they make good money. They don't want their taxes real high. They work hard. Uh, and but they just are alienated by uh, certain things ab- about having very few women in the Trump administration to have any authority about comments about, that Trump has made in the past about women, among other things. I think women uh, also tend to want something done more about gun violence. Uh, and so I, that's a problem. Uh, if I don't see a future for the Republican Party at all. If you start to alienate that group of people, and and they're being alienated, and the problem I see with that is, I I personally I don't want to see a, a country that that doesn't have at least a viable two party system. I might be unfair. That's another podcast too. How many parties would be great right. for America? But the old it's true that the uh, the old uh, saying. Uh, that you know, uh, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now we don't have to worry about that yet. I mean, that might be in the future, and that might never come. But when one party has control of the government, they tend to overreach. They well, tend I- to do stuff that people don't want. Done. They tend to interfere with our freedoms. Well, that's both, my, both parties. Well, that's my fear. I, I, I'm afraid that Donald Trump may have permanently damaged the Republican Party to the point of not being repairable in the near future, and that we're going to see Democrats take control of the House. Uh, Democrats will take control of the Senate, and then there'll be a Democrat in the White House, and there won't be that necessary conservative ballast to restrain Democrats. Um, and we will attack the free market. We will think government owes things to people. And again, I'm a registered Democrat. And so this is sort of an odd thing for a registered Democrat to say that I fear my own party owning three branches of government, owning two branches of government, that they need conservatism. But I believe that. Democrats absolutely need conservatives to keep them from going too far, to well, keep them from overstepping. Yeah, you don't, you don't want to – you know, the, the free market system is – if you look at it in in terms of world history, it it it, it does create wealth. I mean, even Karl Marx said that. Even right. Karl Marx, when he was criticizing capitalism, said, "Well, it would create enough wealth that there wouldn't be scarcity, and eventually, then, because there's no scarcity, we have enough to feed and clothe and house everybody." But even Karl Marx saw that capitalism created wealth, and to me, you never want to kill the goose that lays the golden right. egg, and you'd never want to um, infringe on people's uh, right to go out and start a business, to so take should, a risk. Should and I be afraid? I, I, I don't know what the Democrats will be. If the Democrats become, uh, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's Democrats who aren't 
uh, enamored with capitalism. They aren't enamored with risk-taking and so forth. And maybe uh, you would eventually ha- have to be afraid. Now, right now, the Democrats just have one branch of government. Right. And so, you know, this is in the future. Yeah, I'm looking way in the future and, and uh, speculating a lot of things that we're still on step two. All right. Well, let's get to the meat of this podcast. And we want to talk about Trump and his relationship with the media. Um, and I, what really brought this out this week is what happened with Jim Acosta from CNN. Uh, and I want to play just a clip from that. What was happening, uh, Trump was doing, President Trump was um, doing a press conference. Jim Acosta is a reporter from CNN. He gets up and he asks a question about the caravan moving in from Mexico, and he's agitating. He's really pushing President Trump on this, and and President Trump is getting a little mad at it, and we're going to pick this up right where uh, Jim Acosta is trying to ask his second question, and President Trump tries to shut him down. I want you to take a listen to this, Jeff, and I kind of want your thoughts on this. You know what? That, that's I not an invasion. Should, honestly, uh, I think you should let me run the country. You run CNN. All right. And if you did it well, your ratings well, let me would be ask, much better. If I, if I may okay, ask one enough. other question, Mr. President, if I may, President, I, well, that's I was enough. Ask one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm, I'm, Ms. Excuse President, me. That's enough. Mr. President, I had one other Peter, question, if go. I may ask, on, on the Russia investigation. And are you concerned that... That you may have I'm not concerned about anything with the Russian investigation because it's a hoax. Are you, That's enough. Put down the mic. Mr. President, are you worried about indictments coming down? At this point, the- Trump is walking away from the podium like he's going to leave. President, Mr. President. I'll tell you what. CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. Go ahead. I, I think that's unfair. You're a very rude person. The way you treat Sarah Huckabee is horrible. And the way you treat other people are horrible. You shouldn't treat people that way. Go ahead. In, in, go in ahead, Jim, Peter. Go in, ahead. In Jim's defense, I've traveled with him and watched him. He's a diligent reporter who busts. Well, I'm not like a big fan of, of yours either. So I yeah, understand. To be honest. So let, me, so let me ask you a question, if I can. You repeatedly you said are, you are the best, Mr. President. You repeatedly over the course. Okay, of the, just sit down, please. All right. So there we go. Uh, there's President Trump and his little exchange with President. I mean, President with Jim Costa, Acosta, and. Uh, what his response to this was to revoke his press credentials and not let him into the press pool. But of course, that was reversed by a judge. What's your take on this? Well, it, it's it's a difficult. Uh, I guess it's it's difficult for me to make a judgment about that one situation because sometimes people in the news are rude and they. You know, they stick their microphones. Now, generally, I have more sympathy when someone has just lost their house in a natural disaster or there's been a shooting somewhere in a school and they badger somebody for a response. And and, and everybody can sympathize with the person they're badgering. It's like just stay the heck out of their lives until they – Now, with a president, you expect them to have some kind of – relationship with the press. Uh, You know, as the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Um, So it's a long tradition in American history. I think Acosta was being a little bit rude, but I also think Trump has very consciously decided to demonize the press. Um, I know I've seen a lot of 
uh, uh, my my kid plays soccer. I've seen a lot of soccer games, and I've watched some football too. You've watched a yep. lot of football. The coaches work the referees, and sometimes it works. They, I've seen soccer games that are called fairly, and then a coach really gets after the referee, and then they the next uh, half of yeah, uh, they, you know they're favoring the coach's side. They don't want to they don't want to get hectored like that. It's just they want to go along and get along. And I think Trump is a smart enough guy about public relations that he works the referees here. That you know he he tells his base that the media is out to get him, and and that there's a lot of fake news out there, and to some extent it insulates him from real criticism because people just well you know they ask you what this well that's the New York Times reported that fake news fake news yeah yeah well I don't, I don't believe whatever is in the in, right. in the New York Times even though it might be well reported. So I think Trump has made a conscious decision. Now, to me, it's a dangerous decision because you you absolutely need uh, a a free press. Here, here's a quote by Thomas Jefferson: "The basis of our governments being the opinion of the people. The very first object should be to keep that right. And were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter." So. I mean, Thomas Jefferson's a founder, and he's even though he was treated really harshly oh, yeah. at times in the press, he's saying we we've got to have at that time the free press was actually the press, it was actually newspapers, <laughs> and uh, you you know you can't you can't have a democracy without it. You can't have a democracy unless there is some reporting on the negative sides of, of what a president or government is doing. Right. You, to me, the freedom of the press is, is is by far the most important right guarantee in the Bill of Rights. Because without the freedom of the press, you have no idea what your government is doing. You can't hold them accountable. You're only able to go into the voting booth and make good decisions because of what the press tells you. Um, and you ha- and of course, the press can misuse their power, and that's why we don't. That's why we have so many different media outlets. Um, but this demonizing of the press, as you point out, is disturbing to me because then it allows whoever's in authority to create their own truth, even though – and then we get what Kellyanne Conway calls alternative facts, that facts become these things that are there or they're not there. And we can basically say anything you, wa- you want. You can say anything you want and people are going to believe you because you've basically discredited um, – Everyone who's speaking against you or is not even speaking against you, but their job is to hold you accountable. I want to play another clip for you here. Um, This is just a a compilation of uh, some of the things Trump has said at press conferences. The mainstream media, these people back here, they're the worst. They are so dishonest. No, no, they're so dishonest. And, And by the way, some of the media is terrific. But most of it, 70%, 75%, is absolute dishonest, absolute scum. Remember that. Scum. Scum. They're totally dishonest people. She's back there. Little Katie. She's back there. What a lie it was. No. What a lie. Katie Turr. 
What a lie it was from NBC to have written that was a total lie. But let me tell you about the Wall Street Journal. I have no respect whatsoever for the Wall Street Journal. I don't think they know what they're doing. Uh, they have taken me on so much. It's so ridiculous. Uh, everyday editorials, bad editorials. I don't even want to read it very much anymore. They are so wrong. We're going to open up those libel laws so that when the New York Times writes a hit piece, which is a total disgrace, or when the Washington Post, which is there for other reasons, writes a hit piece, we can sue them and win money. By the way, the world's most dishonest people are back there. Look at all the cameras going. Look at all those cameras. Unbelievable. They are dishonest. Most of them, not all of them, but most of them. I'm not looking for credit. But what I don't want is when I raise millions of dollars, have people say, like this sleazy guy right over here from ABC. He's a sleaze in my book. You're a sleaze because you know, you know the facts and you know the facts well. It was very unfair that the press treated us so badly. Yeah, go ahead. So he goes on. I have some quotes here. Um, corrupt, disgusting, unfair, fake news, unbelievably dishonest. Uh, down the tubers, one of my favorite. I'm, uh, I'm going to continue to attack the press. This is a very compelling one. Enemy of the people. I he uses that phrase. It's like an old socialist phrase they used to use, uh, and he's picked it up to, yeah. to describe the press. The disgusting people for the media. The New York Times is disgusting. Phony polls. The political press is amongst the most dishonest people I've ever met. They're the most dishonest people you would deal with. The lying reporters. If all the things that I may not like about Donald Trump – to me, this is the most powerful. He is attacking, for me, the very foundation of our democracy. If we can have, you can have a difference of opinion, but you can't have a difference of facts. You you don't you don't get your own facts. Um, and if you attack the press and people believe you, then you are the giver of truth. Um, and then what has happened is not only is Donald Trump attacking certain press outlets, then he is highlighting other outlets. And maybe I'm going too far here, but he's turning certain networks almost into state-owned uh, propaganda pieces. And that's Fox News. If we go to two other clips here, here's Sean Hannity at a Trump rally in November 5th in Missouri, this is be before the midterms, um, an, an impromptu thing a lot of Trump's um, press, his rallies are impromptu, and he calls Sean Hannity up to the stage. And I want you to hear the, especially I'm going to play a little bit of this, but ex especially listen to what Sean Hannity says immediately. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. By the way, all those people in the back are fake news. <laughs> Mr. President, I, I did an opening monologue today and I had no idea you were going to invite me up here. And the one thing that has made and defined your presidency more than anything else, promises made, promises kept. I mean, there's a, a guy from Fox News 
telling, pointing out everyone else is fake news. And Donald Trump is smiling and everyone around him is clapping. And people are pointing back at the news people now billing. And then he goes on to endorse um, Trump. And it's, it's about a minute clip. But this is sort of an amazing thing to me that one of the highest paid – he's not a reporter. He's an entertainer. Um, he's an opinion man. But one of the highest paid people on the network, Fox News Network, is now on stage campaigning with the, pre- with the president of the United States. Should I be concerned about that? Well, yeah, I think you should be. And now, uh, let's let's take a look at 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 the the news media. And you've heard for many, many, many years now. I think that it's has a left wing bias, and and to to some degree, that's true. I mean, back in two thousand and five, UCLA, I think, did maybe the first study on this, and they studied twenty media outlets, and they tried to compare them to what the average person thought, and they had this meth- methodology that I'm not going to go into. But they they came out with the conclusion that 18 of the 20 outlets were uh, uh, more left-wing than they were right-wing. Okay. Now, they in that, and there's been some follow-up studies about individual reporters and editors and so forth and media outlets, and those studies have concluded, too, that those people usually have – uh, more moderate to liberal opinions than conservative ones. Now, why is that? Is that a conspiracy? I would suggest that if you look at where the the dominant media outlets are, are big cities and the type of people that go into uh, to those companies for careers, those okay. corporations, they're probably – left of center and an interesting finding of the UCLA study and some other studies is that they're left wing uh not economically but socially in other words gay marriage or abortion rights uh civil rights for people voting rights they're for those things they're not necessarily especially these higher up people in media economically liberal which would also stand to reason i mean some of them make a lot of money. Right. They might not be as concerned about paying for college or paying for health care as, as the average person. So uh, they're left socially and not economically. What's happened, though, is, is another thing that's economically driven, and that's niche marketing. Uh, niche marketing. What do you mean by niche marketing? Well, you – if, if I'm a network and I want to sell advertising, which I do, that's how I'm going to make my money, uh, it's really good for me to have a loyal set of viewers and I can identify my demographic. You know, uh, for Fox News, it tends to be older white people, uh, especially white males. And you can tell that if you watch the station. If you watch it, you'll see that their opinion leaders in the past, Bill O'Reilly, now Sean Hannity, they tend to be older white males. And they tend to be surrounded periodically by some pretty hot, dyed blonde women. Right. I, don't right. quite, I don't quite understand that dynamic. But, <laughs> well, like- but if you're appealing to an older male audience, okay. it's easy just to look at it and see. So... It's now, kind of like the sideline reporter in the NFL. <laughs> I mean, really, it is, isn't it? Well, yeah, because yeah, what, what, who are you appealing to? Who's right. going to watch that? But then, if they know, if they can get that same group to tune in, they can sell advertising to that 
that group. They can make money. That's niche marketing. One of the big, huge differences between Jefferson's time and our time is there's not just newspapers aren't the only source of a political reporting. I mean, you know, you get it on television, you get it on the internet, uh, you know, you get it on your phone nowadays. And but so it helps if you have this particular audience that views the world the way you're going to present the world because. It's hard a lot of times for people to confront their biases or hear information that they don't want to hear. There's something called cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. when people see or hear or an experience happens to them that challenges their worldview. And they don't want that. People figured out they don't want that. So they self-select. And and this is what I think this mitigates the fact that, you know, I agree. I think most of the media, if you say most in terms of the people who are presenting it, uh, tend to be more socially left wing, right? But nowadays with Fox News, that's, uh, the people who are more conservative they don't they don't turn into it. They go to Fox News and they go to the Wall Street Journal, uh, at least their editorial page. I think the Wall Street Journal still has some factual reporting on their reporting page. Uh, they turn on you know years ago. Uh, they turned on talk radio. Right. I mean, Rush Limbaugh pioneered that in the eighties. Yes. People, and, and, and so the idea that you can't get news from another perspective is silly. And and Trump, when he goes on Fox News, shows that where you can get this. And most of the people I talk to who are mad at the media for presenting things from a left wing perspective. I watch Fox News. They're getting it from a right-wing perspective. So this goes, I mean, we were both social studies teachers, the importance about media literacy and for people to be able to evaluate the bias. CNN has an easily identifiable bias. Uh, Fox News has an easily identifiable. MSNBC has a very- They have an identifiable, (laughs) and you should identify that and then take that Accordingly, now I don't think Trump wants a critical appraisal of news. He, you know, he's he wants people to accept what's on Fox or what Rush Limbaugh says, and he wants you to think MSNBC is fake news. Right. Um, and I think the from if we look back at the Walter Cronkite days uh, to today, the news departments of major networks were never there to make money. They were there to inform. Matter of fact, by law, because they were using public airwaves, they had to spend time informing the public. And news, NBC, ABC, CBS, the big three, made their money through advertising on their shows. And the news network was never asked to make money. That changed dramatically with the onset of cable news. Now, news in itself becomes entertainment. And news has to make money. And the way you make money is getting more people to watch. And the more people that watch, um, the more money you make. And you have to be more sensational. And as you point out, that niche marketing, it's not so much that you have to um, get a large demographic of people to watch. You just need to get the right demographic of people to watch. Over and, and over again. Right. And then you – I mean you're not going to see probably um, – I'm trying to think of uh, Aeropostale. You're not going to see Aeropostale commercials on Fox News, right? Those people watching Fox News are not going to shop at Aeropostale. Uh, you're going to see advertising. Does anybody shop at Aeropostale? 
I don't know. <laughs> I, am I even saying it right? I don't even know if I'm even saying it right. I, at first, like how old I am, that I'm trying to try, try to think of someplace hip that young people would go, uh, and I come up with Aeropostale. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, you're going to have products that middle aged men to older men and women use. And if you watch the network, it just, depends. Exactly, so. <laughs> depends. I wasn't going to go there, but I was going to go more like the Cialis, where they're sitting in their tubs. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. But who does that? I mean, the Cialis commercial where they have tubs side by side and they're holding hands. It's romantic. To and it's me. not, it, it's kind of gross to me. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I guess it makes for a good commercial picture. Anyway, so you have this, like you point out, this niche marketing, um, and then the news becomes something to be sold. And I, I think, I can't help but think we are less served by cable news uh, and then we were by network news 50 years ago when they didn't have to worry about ratings. Well, and, and you know, I, I grew up in the days when there was ABC, NBC, and, and CBS, and there was there was a, a couple things there. For one, I, I think there was more more of an effort in the journalism schools that produced the guys on the network to report facts. Just you know, and, and, and I think you had more just reporting uh, of facts. Um, and the the other thing is, most people if they got their news off TV. They were watching one of those three networks, so there tended to be an agreement on what the facts were. Right. The the you know you I think you absolutely identified the problem in our current media environment. People don't know what the facts are. I mean, and now you have social media, oh, which gosh, which yes. is you know makes even worse because. Uh, there's a tendency for me to want to hear, as there is for everybody, things that support my worldview. Confirmation bias. But that's going to be even more pronounced if in my Facebook group or my whatever my social media uh, uh, platform is, the, the people I follow on Twitter, whatever it is, I'm going to pick them because they agree with me. And I might know some of those people. They might be my friends. Well, they're not going to believe something wrong, are they? But then you get the crazy stuff like we had. We had that guy uh, with the assault rifle that showed up at Cosmic Pizza. Because there's a child pornography thing. Because Hillary Clinton was was running a child prostitution ring or something. Yeah, out of a a pizza parlor, which, Mm -hmm. you know, you can believe a lot of bad things about the Clintons, but. Hillary wasn't running the child prostitution ring out of the out of the pizza parlor. She just wasn't, and 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 then that makes it susceptible. As we now know, what happened during the election, we had Russian bots tra- driving stories that would uh, separate us, that would uh, divide us further. Uh, stories about. The the you know Hillary Clinton having the having the uh, uh, child pornography ring at the pizza parlor, but and things that had headlines that would be divisive. So you know that couldn't have happened with ABC, NBC, and CBS. The Russians couldn't have influenced those those networks in, in that way. So and I do think you have to have an agreement on what the facts. Are uh, in order to have a democracy, you have to have a conversation. I mean, 
And if somebody is just – when I get on Facebook, I try not to have too many political comments. I, you know, sometimes I can't help myself on Facebook. I try not to respond to too many things. But immediately if you question somebody, a lot of times you just get talking points. Yes. You can see that – or a link – to whatever it is, website. It can be a conservative. It can be Daily Coast, which is a liberal website. It can be Town Hall or Red State, which is a conservative website. It's just a link. And they've read it, and that's true, and you know, you're know you wrong. There's not an actual uh, conversation, and there's not an idea that you know you could have been wrong about something. I, you know, I've studied politics, obviously – there's hundreds of thousands of people that are interested in how our economy works, that they can make money or lose money because of it. Nobody understands these issues perfectly. And yet, if you get on Facebook, it's like, oh, yeah, this is the way. That's absolutely the way they do that. And we've kind of lost our, uh, what I want to say, our humbleness about this. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. We, we're not humble anymore that we, we think we know what we don't know. We don't know what we don't know, and yeah. we're, we're and that's and because and, and it's terrible because we we think that because we read it on Twitter, or Facebook, or I mean some source that has no uh, re- has no experts reviewing what's posted on there, and uh, it's 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 not good. Well, I had a two hundred a two thousand sixteen Gallup poll, and this was just with Republicans uh, because we were talking about Republican trust to the media. Um, only 14% said they trust the media, um, and less than half of the people polled actually fact-check anything bef- that they're reading or listening to. And that is very disconcerting to me. If we look at politic, politic, pol- politic fact scorecard, I think that's run out of um, Tampa Bay. I think the Tampa Bay Tribune or Tampa Bay newspaper runs that. They, they list all of Trump's comments – um, and rate them from true, mostly true, half true, mostly false, false, and pants on fire. Um, only 5% of what he's saying is true, according to this. Um, only 16% is true and mostly true. If you get to false and pants on fire, you're at 48%. I, I don't care how much bias there is in that. You know, that's a lot. You know, those numbers are astounding, but it doesn't – I think we're going to end the podcast on this question for you, Jeff. Why doesn't it matter? Why – it seems that President Trump can say anything he wants um, when easily it can be fact-checked away. The recent thing is about having raking forests, uh, that somehow Finland rakes their forests, and that's why they don't have forest fires, and, and that's not true. Um but it doesn't seem to impact. Make America rake again is <laughs> what I've seen the slogan. Well, you know, I do think it matters, and you know, this might sound elitist, but if you look at where Trump lost votes, it was in among educated suburbanites. And I think they are – one thing they have done studies, people who read more tend to know more about political events and current events probably everything else too, but they've done studies about current events than people who get their information from the television or or the internet, uh, which is an interesting thing. Well, where is he losing support? I think he's losing support among the people that read more. Okay. And, 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 and that's a, that's a good thing. I mean, the idea that the press is the enemy of the people, I mean, this is just fraught with danger. 
Uh, and of course, he doesn't mean the press. He means the people who report negative things about right. him. Um, you know, there's the, the very famous uh, novel, uh, 1984 by George Orwell. And the guy in the, who's the protagonist is a guy named Winston Smith. And he's actually sort of a journalist of the future. But his job is to rewrite stories so the government's always right. Right. And anything that, that uh, uh, in the past that has, that, where the government has changed their position, uh, one of his jobs is to isolate that and at that time burn up because it wasn't paper, you know, the, the imaginary 1984. And he puts it down the memory hole so you don't remember that. So there's only one version of things, and, and that's the government. And when he starts to rebel, when he starts to question this, he says uh, this interesting thing. Freedom is the freedom to say that two plus two make four. If that is granted, all else follows. And 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 what George Orwell means by that is, is we have to – there has to be this idea that people there's an objective truth, that truth is not just dictated by the, the news media outlet or the Facebook page that you're on. I mean, is the deficit going up or is it going down? Uh, are, are, um, are people uh, being denied coverage from pre-existing conditions or aren't they? I mean, these are these are the basic questions that people have to know about. Is there Social Security and Medicare safe for the future? Is it not safe for the future? Um, is college going to cost more in 12 years, or can we make that a little more affordable? All those things have actual, factual answers. Right. They're, they're, I don't think it's up for discussion that those uh, can't have factual answers. And people need to know that. And they need to be able to find those facts so we can have an honest discussion. So I, I, Trump is not, you know, he, he has a tenuous relationship with the truth. I think he, I guess maybe his diehard supporters at this point don't believe that, but the majority of Americans would not describe him as being a a an honest person. That just that is, you know, the the thing is. You know, I think the news media has to be aware that a lot of people don't trust them because there has been a um, a liberal bias in, in what they think. And I think the news media really, really needs, even though people have already always interested in sensationalism, they really need to have facts. And they maybe all the major news media uh, need to show that where they fact checked. Maybe America and, and we as social studies teachers have to encourage that among young people. And, and, and this has to be done all over the country. This idea of media literacy, reading right. something, knowing what the bias is. How do you fact check those people? And that's true of – and I don't think most conservatives would object to that. I think most conservatives realize uh, that, that those things are objective and we need to train people how to find those things. I agree, Jeff. We're going to leave it there uh, for this podcast. I'd like to do a shout out, Jeff, at this point to our listeners in Sweden. Um, it seems that we have quite a few downloads from Sweden, um, which is an interesting thing. So if you are listening to us from Sweden, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a contact uh, at history, politics, and beer at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And 
let us know why we are so popular in Sweden. <laughs> All right. Thanks a, guy, thanks a lot, guys, for listening. And uh, have a great Thanksgiving, and we'll see you after the break. Good night. Good night.